The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're at another major section in the book of Acts. If you remember Paul and Barnabas, they've just completed the first missionary journey, mostly in the region of Galatia. And seeing the mighty hand of God at work, as many Gentiles believe in Jesus and churches are established and strengthened. When they return to the sending church in Antioch of Syria, a growing Gentile church that's really become the, the main hub of Christianity, the entire church gathered to hear from Paul and Barnabas. And all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I love the emphasis of this verse. Even though Paul and Barnabas are the ones who traveled many miles and and performed miracles and endured persecution and saw many people come to Christ. It's not all that Paul and Barnabas had done, but all that God had done with them. And a main theme of our text in chapter 15 is that God is clearly at work among the Gentiles. So why would we want to test him? That's the the reply that's given. Why would we want to test him by adding anything to the gospel? Some of the Jewish Christians... um, Some of the Jewish Christians agree that Jesus is the Savior and that salvation is through faith in Him. But they've, they've come to the Gentile churches to insist that it's also necessary for them to become Jews, to submit to circumcision and the law. To settle this dispute, Paul and Barnabas, they travel to the church in Jerusalem to to put it before the apostles and elders. And and we know, we can tell, regardless of, of the outcome, we know the outcome, but regardless of the outcome, we have a sense that Paul is never gonna budge on this. He'll hold to the true gospel, even if it means dividing the church, even if it means a Gentile Christianity and a Jewish Christianity. In Paul's mind, these Judaizers, this, this party of the circumcision, those who are requiring something of these gen, new Gentile believers, in Paul's mind, these are enemies of the cross. And they're actually opposing God. So, let's work our way through this very important moment in church history and see what God has done. But before we do so, let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you that you you have preserved your word. You've given it to your church. Your word is truth and we rejoice in the blessing of reading it and knowing you and how you've worked in the lives of your people. May we grow in our love for Jesus and all that he is for us and has done for us. Bless us with your spirit as we consider your word. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to follow along as I read verses 1 to 21 of Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas, they, they had given this, remember, they had given this good news of what God had done, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, this is bugging me really quick. I just have to say, before we get into the heart of this text, I'm curious if any of you are bothered by Luke saying that the men who traveled north to Antioch are described as going down. 
And when Paul and Barnabas travel south, he says they're going up to Jerusalem. Did you notice that? It's not a big deal, but it just kind of bugged me. So I did a little research. I know it's a little thing, but, you know, when we travel north, we say we go up. When we travel south, we go down. I remember as a kid, my older brothers would correct me on these things. So I know this is true. So here's, here's the answer. Here's why Luke says it that way. It either has to do with elevation or with the prominence of a place. Jerusalem is up on a hill. And so when people travel away from Jerusalem, they go down. And when they travel to Jerusalem, they go up. And when they travel to, um, there's also this sense of importance with Jerusalem. People on a pilgrimage, they ascend to high places in order to worship. And we get the picture of this in the, our Wednesday morning men's group. We just started the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134. The Psalms of Ascent describing like, like each Psalm like a step, one after the other, leading up to Jerusalem and to the worship of God. So if you wondered, there you have it. If you don't care, thanks for your patience. As important as Antioch is becoming, they still go up to Jerusalem. It's the holy city, the place of worship, the birthplace of the first church. It's where the apostles are. So in order to decide the official teaching of the Christian church, they travel south, going up to Jerusalem. The main controversy of the early church, the one faced here in Acts and mentioned all throughout our New Testament, had to do with what it means, what does it mean to be a child of God? Israel, the Jewish people, were called, they're the called ones, the called of God. They were a people set apart for the sake of his name. They were the children of God. And so when these early Jewish Christians saw Gentiles becoming Christians, they very naturally thought, well, if if they're going to be children of God like us, they need to become Jews. And being a Jew means becoming a proselyte, which means taking on the sign of the covenant or circumcision. It means keeping the laws of Moses and the various laws having to do with diet and cleanliness. Because of their long history and, and deep tradition and cultural religious practices, it's understandable. When you know, we think of it in this way, it's understandable that, they'd, that they would think this way. That they'd equate Judaism with being a child of God. But it also shows that they really didn't understand what Jesus accomplished. They didn't understand that that. Jesus, that he is the true Israel, that he is the only son of God, and and the inheritance that belongs to him, he gives to all who have faith in him. A person who is in Christ is an adopted heir, a true child of God through Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 9, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Now the promises, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The children of God are not according to race, but according to promise. God promised to send a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. God promised an offspring through Abraham that would bless all peoples, all nations. All of Israel's history, their laws and rituals and customs, they all pointed to Christ. The coming Messiah would be the true sacrificial lamb. All other sacrifices only pointed to him, and he alone was able to be our substitute, taking on the curse that we deserve. He would be our righteousness, keeping the laws that the people were unable to bear. So when we rightly see Jesus and have faith in him, what more is there to add? Gentiles didn't need to become Jews. They and we have everything we need in Christ. In him we become children of God according to the work of God, the promise of God. So requiring something in addition to Jesus points to a great misunderstanding of Jesus and Jewish history, really. These Jewish Christians are concerned about others becoming children of God. They're concerned about circumcision. Circumcision, which is a sign of the old covenant. And like every covenant, there are blessings and curses. Circumcision speaks of the need for sin to be cut off from the people. And if the covenant is broken, that person is cursed. They're cut off from the covenant community. Jesus, the only and perfect covenant keeper, the one who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, took the curse for us. He was cut off. He became a curse so that we wouldn't have to bear the curse of God. And so, the sign of that covenant is fulfilled in Christ, and the sign of the new covenant is baptism, which indicates that we are cleansed by Christ. These Jews are concerned about things that have been accomplished, fulfilled in Christ, What was only a reminder of the impossible burden is now accomplished in Christ. They're concerned about ceremonial cleanliness, while faith in Jesus means we're forever clean. It was during this time that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, describing this conflict. Apparently, these Judaizers, this party of the circumcision has been at work among the churches. Paul just took this first missionary journey to these various cities in the region of Galatia. And this, these Jewish Christians who insisted upon circumcision, they've been at work. They, and Paul writes to them out of concern. And he says, I am astonished... 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The ones who are troubling these new churches are described by Paul as giving a different gospel. A distortion of the gospel. A gospel that's contrary to the truth and deserving of damnation. It's a crucial point in the history of the church because this is not like, this is not like a different view on baptism or eschatology. It's not some minor theological difference that would simply result in another denomination. No, it's the difference between blessing and cursing, between salvation and condemnation, between Christianity and another new religion that cannot save. The ultimate issue here, it's not really even circumcision. It's the sufficiency of Christ. Is salvation in Christ alone? Or does God only love us when we do our part? When we really submit our lives to him? When we're victorious over that particular sin? Circumcision and ceremonial laws, okay, they're not a big temptation for the church today. But still, we're challenged with the same root issue. Is Jesus enough? Or do we need something more? Do we need something more in order to be right with God? Is, Is it Jesus plus Jesus plus the Republican Party, Jesus plus social justice, Jesus and the vax, Jesus and no vax, Jesus plus heterosexuality. What really saves us? Why does God love us? Is it because of Christ? Because you're robed in his righteousness, his purity? Or are you a little more secure because you know that you're right about this or that? Okay, I can already hear the objections and expecting some emails here, some questions. But So let me be clear. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter how we live. And that sin and disobedience to God's moral law is, is not important. I'm not saying that. We need to keep the Ten Commandments. But why? Why? Well, in order to be, do we we say it's in order to be right with God? In order to be a child of God? No. It's because we love God. It's because we want to honor Him. It's because we we trust in His Word and that living this way is a a blessing, a way that leads to human flourishing and, and the good of our neighbor. Repentance Repentance is necessary for salvation. And in saying that, am I saying, well, okay, is that a plus? Is that, is that, am I adding a work to Jesus? 
It's not Jesus plus repentance. It's repentance because we rightly understand Jesus as Savior. Having faith in Jesus means that we believe in him as the one and only Savior, right? So if we don't recognize and repent of our sin, if we don't feel the need, then what's the point of a Savior? But on the other hand, if we think we need to add to his goodness, then what's the point of that Savior? Because it appears he's not good enough. The Jews, the Jews wanted to add good works. It made them uncomfortable that those, those, those pagans would call themselves Christians. They needed to be good, they thought. They needed to be Jews, like us. In other words, Jesus isn't enough. So, for us, what does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean going to church? Living a good life? Being a good person? Does it mean that you, you serve and give and spend time in prayer? That you're pro-life and read your Bible and do good deeds? Helping your neighbor? Caring for the homeless? There are a lot of good works to be done. And it's God's will to sanctify us, to to change us into a people who do good works and live and act and think more and more like Jesus. But what's critical to this debate is all about the order and significance placed on our works. Do we first believe in Jesus and do good works and then get saved? Or do we believe in Jesus, get saved, and do good works? There's a difference here. Does Paul say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus by good works or for good works? How we live is important. James says that faith without works is dead. And what he means is that Because we believe in Jesus, because our faith, our salvation is real, then we can't help but do good works. We're not saved by doing good works, but our salvation, our faith, it's demonstrated, it's proven to be true, it's vindicated by our works. It's not faith plus works equals salvation, it's faith equals salvation. And salvation, or true faith, always works. And one of many reasons we know that that James here doesn't, doesn't teach a works righteousness message is because of what he says in Acts 15. Again, keep in mind that this isn't a group of Jews who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. No, they're, they're people who would have said how wonderful it is that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. They would have confessed that Jesus died for their sins. Yet, they would have also said that no one can be saved without first becoming a Jew. And the door to Jewishness is circumcision. Okay, we're 15 to 20 years into the New Testament church. It's only now becoming an issue 
Because prior to this, most of the converts to Christianity were Jews. But now there's a, there's a problem in the minds of these Jewish believers because these Gentile believers, well, they're still Gentiles. And some have noticed the perfect plan of God here. Because think about it. If these, if these Gentiles were supposed to become Jews and were immersed into Jewish culture, they would have lost their ability to be Christians in their own culture, to be witnesses of Christ in their own communities. But some of these Jewish believers were thinking, nobody's telling them that in order to be Christians, they need to be clean. The issue is stated in verse 1. They said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. In other words, Jesus is not enough to make you clean. And Paul was not about to budge on this. He addressed this this in Galatians, calling it heresy. As people trying to subvert the church, he saw these men as enemies of God and that they're deserving of damnation. This is how serious Paul sees this. And yet these people, these Jewish believers would sound very Christian. If you ask them, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? They would have said, of course we do. But they'd probably go on and ask you, well, don't you believe that God has given us the law and that we're supposed to keep it? All this kind of reminds me of Mormons who have come to my door. And if you ask them about Jesus and the cross, and even if they're saved by grace, you know, these these key words that we think of that are ours, the cross and Jesus and grace and sin, if you ask them these things, they'll say, yes, absolutely, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. They'll say, we're saved by grace. But what they don't mean is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they even like to misuse James. They, They like that verse that says, but faith without works is dead. And they'll twist that and use it to to say, well, it's Jesus plus you have to do good works in order to be saved. This is what every cult has in common. And it's even the danger of what Roman Catholicism teaches and why there was a reformation in the 16th century. Is it grace or grace alone? Is it faith or faith alone? That little word alone was the issue in in Jerusalem, in the 16th century, in 16th century Rome, with the Mormon at your door. Is it Jesus plus something or is it Christ alone? This is the heart of the gospel and Paul would never compromise. For the sake of unity... Okay, for the sake of unity, there are occasions for compromise. In fact, our text ends really with a loving compromise. James's understanding 
the stumbling block, the difficulty many Jewish Christians are going to have over Gentiles eating meat offered to idols and stuff like that. It's, it's not necessary for salvation. It's not in addition to the finished work of Christ. But there's a compromise here. It's loving to not want your brothers in Christ to stumble. How we live matters because it affects other people. It might lead them to sin. We shouldn't flaunt our freedoms, but abstain for the sake of others. And that's what's going on here. And some of what James says to abstain from, well, it's clearly sin. But it's mentioned because some of these things are mentioned because it's a part of Gentile society. And these Christians need to, these new Christians, well, they need to care about their Jewish brothers and sisters. They, shouldn't, they should care that whether they're going to cause them to stumble or not. So James makes a right judgment about the gospel. He's not adding any work to it. doesn't mention circumcision at the end. But as Christians, he asks them to abstain from these other things. It's a, it's a good compromise, a loving compromise. Compromise for the sake of love and unity, it can be a good thing. But not when it comes to the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas, they travel up to Jerusalem, stopping along the way, bringing about this great joy to the people of Phoenicia and Samaria as they describe their journeys and the salvation of the Gentiles. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. And it seems significant that that Luke continues to describe their journey and adventures and success as what God had done and not what they had done. It's significant because salvation belongs to the Lord. Because God is sovereign to save. It's what he has done to the point of us having no room for boasting. Okay, so they're there, and first to speak was Peter. And I wonder if Paul thought when Peter's getting up, oh, I just rebuked him. Is he going to be on my side? Back in Antioch, Peter had been eating with Gentiles, enjoying table fellowship. But when this group of Jews came to visit, he pulled back and he separated himself. This is the occasion in Galatians 2 where where Paul publicly rebukes Peter for acting like a hypocrite. So Peter, well, he could have been upset at Paul. He could have taken this opportunity to oppose him. But what we read is Peter defending the truth of the gospel, remembering God's, God's vision of, remember that sheet coming down from heaven? And that he wasn't to call someone unclean that God has made clean. Peter knew this. God makes us clean through Jesus and not through the law of Moses. So Peter reminds them of what God had done through him, saying, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
God chose by my mouth, the mouth of Peter, to make the Gentiles in Cornelius' home clean. Peter says, he did this through my mouth as I shared the gospel with them. And they believed. Peter argues that God made no distinction. He made no distinction between us and them. It's his sovereign choice to have mercy on whom he has mercy. And the evidence of this is that the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Not only on us at at Pentecost, but also on these Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. God chose to wash, to cleanse, to baptize us and them in the Spirit. God said... What I have made clean, don't call unclean. And secondly, Peter says in verse 10, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Hasn't God called them clean because of Jesus? Hasn't he given them, given evidence of this by the Spirit? Why do you feel the need to test God by adding requirements to these Gentiles? Requirements that, that we've never been able to keep. And then Peter says something very gracious in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And I think this is gracious because... I kind of expect them to say it the other way around. That they might be saved like us. And this was the issue, wasn't it? That they would be like us. But graciously, Peter says, we will be saved just like them. In pride, do we think the answer to the problems around us will be solved if if they might be more like us? The gospel, the gospel should humble us. It should remind us that we need a savior. And that the answer to the problems of this world are not solved by more people being like us, but that we might be saved as they are saved. This should be the reputation of Christ's church. And so it's all the more frustrating to hear about those who have been mistreated by the church. The Christians are sometimes described as arrogant or, or this air of superiority, judgmental. It's antithetical to our faith. We, of all people, should know the humbling effect of the gospel. There's a famous story about G.K. Chesterton writing an essay where he and others were asked the question, what is the problem with the world? And Chesterton submitted one line to the magazine editor that said, The problem with the world is me. And it sounds like hyperbole. It sounds, maybe, is there some false modesty there or is he joking? But there's a sense in which a Christian should know that this is true. Not that we beat ourselves up. But that we know our own sin, that we know God's grace, and that the solution is not for others to be more like us, but that 
by God's grace alone, we all need to be more like Christ. The next people to speak were Paul and Barnabas. And the whole assembly, there's this silence, this hushed tone. And I think, was it because of what Peter just said, or is it because of the reputation of Paul coming up and they've had, they kind of know what's gone on? I don't know. There's this hushed tone in the assembly. And they're silent as they, they listen to they listen to them describe these miraculous signs and wonders. Remember lame man being healed and all that had occurred. Paul being stoned and God sparing him. Many people coming to Christ. So they hear of all that God had done through them for the sake of the Gentiles. And that's really all that's described here. We don't know specifically the, the words just that they described the work of God through them. And it's significant. It's a significant description because, well, Paul tended to communicate in realms of ideas. He's more of a theologian than a storyteller. And we can imagine him wanting to, to clarify specific points of doctrine, of justification, of, of the gospel. But some have suggested that, you know, Paul was wise enough to know his audience. And that Jews, well, they tended to think more in terms of God's great acts and deeds. And, and so when Paul spoke to Jews, he spoke like a Jew. And when he spoke to Gentiles, he spoke as a Gentile. Peter had begun by showing how God had worked through him. And Paul and Barnabas, they, they picked up on this. And they did the same thing. Instead of, instead of arguing specific points of theology, this was an occasion to talk about the miraculous signs that God had done through them. Again, God is working. So who are we to stand against him? Finally, James has a turn to speak. And it's interesting that James is the chairman of the council. He's the leader, not Peter. James was the most Jewish of all the leaders. And you can tell from the book of James that his style, his thinking, it's, it's a little different than Paul's. And because he emphasizes good works, I wonder if the Judaizers thought, well, if anyone's going to be on our side, it's probably James. And James knew who he had to convince. He knew the argument needed to be made to the Jews and not the Gentiles. And instead of, we can see this wisdom in James, because instead of mentioning Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, he picks up where Peter left off. And all the more you see an appeal to a Jewish audience as he doesn't even use the, the Greek name Peter, but he refers to him by his Jewish name. And not simply Simon, but the most Jewish form of his name, Simeon. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And, and this must have shocked the audience to hear James use, use such religious language, applying it to the Gentiles, calling them a people for his own name. 
It's a phrase normally used for Israel. And the point being made is that the Jews are not the only people of God. The Gentiles, all peoples, you and me, through faith in Jesus Christ, are now the people of God. In the same way Israel had been described under the old covenant, all peoples are described under the new. And adding to this, James then quotes Amos 9, saying that God's word, that the prophets agree that the restoration of Israel is not a, is not a restoration of ethnic Israel, but that it refers to the church which is made up of Jew and Gentile. The implications are massive. It speaks of the beautiful design and plan of God concerning the church. The church The church is not some plan B. It's not a parenthesis. An intermission during the main event of God dealing with ethnic Israel. Some think along these lines in in end times views. That's not what's going on here. No, what's promised in the old is fulfilled in the new. And the new covenant, it's more expansive than the old. The remnant, the people of God are not according to race but according to promise. And the promises that were given to Israel under the old are applied to the church under the new. The church, which is all people who are called by God's name, the church, which is united under the same spirit, baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, free or slave, male or female, God shows no partiality. It's good news, isn't it? The gospel is good news. It's the power of God to save. And we should love it. And we should share it. And we should never, ever, ever be ashamed of it. Let's pray. Father, your plan is perfect. And we praise you for your glorious grace. We praise you for Jesus and that our hope, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing less and nothing more. Lord, help us to see and identify areas of pride. Anything we might add to the work of Christ. Give us Give us compassion for the lost, compassion that's confident in the solid foundation of Christ and the the blessings that are ours in him. We love you. We praise you. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.